As Christians, it's essential that we display the characteristics of love. I remember oh so well entering the first grade when I was in school. We didn't have kindergarten. And I remember the first grade because my twin brother was taken by the hand and he was separated from me and he was to go down the hall to another classroom and that was a rather emotional time for a set of twins to be separated. And I remember being seated in that desk with nothing in there. No pencils or crayons, no books, nothing. I was just there. And I remember the feeling of that. The aloneness and the strangeness and, and the awkwardness of the moment. But I want to remind you that in the world that we live in, there are a lot of people who feel that way in life. They're alone, they're awkward, they're without anything, they're in, they're in a strange place, they're separated from those that, that really cared about them, and they need someone to love them, to care about them. I always thought in the first grade that the sweetest, most wonderful person I ever met was our first grade school teacher. Well, I found out later, we all thought that, because she was so loving and she was so kind. She walked around and, and she pet, as I say, she petted all the puppies. She never ignored a one of us. She made us feel wanted and cared about. When she handed us a pencil, it was like it was a personal gift. That's what love is. That's what the Christian's love should be to the world. Because the world is, each and every person without Christ is out there in a wilderness all alone. They may be surrounded by people, but they're truly alone because there's no one there that can reach out and change their situation for the better. There's no one there that can lift them up out of the morass of disaster that they're facing without Christ. There's no one there that can guide them in the way that they should go. And that's why love is so important. That's why love is the basis of all that we do as Christians. It is possible to be a Christian without showing these characteristics, but not for long. Truly, if you're a Christian, you've got to demonstrate to the world who Jesus really is, and He is the fullness of love in every way. Love and the unity it attests to is the mark of Christ and of Christians. And the world is looking for something better than what they have. When we wear our, our faith in love, and people see that mark, they're changed by it. They're drawn to it. Because there's so much that's disingenuous in this world. There's so much that's fake. There's so many people that put on a face, but behind that face, there's nothing. They simply have a self-centered life. The Christian gives to someone a love that they've not felt before. And more than ever, the church needs to respond compassionately to the needy world. We've done enough in the way of being commentators about criticizing the problems in the world. And we know their problems. It's a broken world. It's been broken ever since the beginning. Before humanity left the Garden of Eden, things were broken. Yet we need to be people who say there's something better than that, and you can be a part of it. The greatest detriment to the gospel today is that Christians are not displaying the characteristics of love to a dying world. And that's who we are, and that's who we must be. Our heart and our soul and our mind needs to let them know that they're loved by a Creator that made them specifically for a purpose. And that if they don't fulfill that purpose, they've missed the greatest blessing of eternity. 
The reality is that many Christians only display this selectively sometimes. I've told you the story before that I can remember a family in our church that I love dearly, but we would very often follow them to church. We had a Ford Fairlane 500, and they had a Vista Cruiser, which I thought was the neatest vehicle in the world. And we would watch them drive to church to about a mile and a half from where we lived, and we would see the, the torrent of frustration and anxiety because mom was leaning over her seat trying to dress one of the four kids in some way or fashion. There was somebody fussing and fighting. There's usually food flying around. And there was always a disagreement with this family because they were just that way. But there was something magical about the parking lot there at the church because as their Vista Cruiser would pull in and stop, suddenly, magically, without any understanding, they became Christians. They smiled. They were happy. Everything was going great. And, and my dad, with his sense of... Uh, of, of humor would always look. He'll say, you know, this parking lot's special. He said, we need, to, we need to sell this thing somewhere to people of the world so they'd be that way. Now, the truth is, we all do that to some sense of the word. We really do. We tell our children, when they go to church, what do we say? Be on your best behavior. The reality is, as Christians, we should always be on our best behavior, especially at home. Especially at home. But God expects us as Christians to, to essentially give that love wherever we go because we are the promoter, the advertiser, the demonstrator, and the one who closes the deal on the love of Christ. If we can't let people see that in our hearts so much so that it changes them, then we're not fulfilling our destiny. I want to think today for a few minutes that we have about the idea of love and how love changes who we are. What is love? And how does it play into the relationship we have with God? We have a God that's so far away from us as far as distance, yet He's so close to us for He's within us through His Holy Spirit. And we can sometimes seem alienated from Him if we don't stay close to Him. You skip over the opportunity of prayer and, and a devotion with Him. You ignore the fact that He speaks to us in guidance. And all these things will end up in a situation where you don't have the love of Christ. You can be alienated from it. So I want to think today how we can keep that love and how we can change and transition the world that we're in into the world that they should become. First of all, I want you to realize this. Love is the foundation of all that we are. John, John reminds us of the importance of what is being done here because he's preaching in Asia a message that had not been heard before. You see, they had an attitude. People in, in the pagan world at that time had an attitude. Well, well you love people who love you, that give, give you something that, that you benefit from. And if somebody mistreats you, you ignore them. At the least and at the most, you mistreat them. Jesus turned all that on its head. He said, you should love those who don't love you. You should reach out to those who alienate you. You should give to those who take from you. Because in doing that, you demonstrate the love of Christ. We sometimes forget about that. 
John goes back to the first of his gospel and, and reminds us in verse 11 of, of John chapter 1, said, this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Our love for the world does not begin with the world. It begins with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's where it should begin, but it certainly shouldn't end there. The phrase, the message you heard from the beginning, points back to the beginning of the letter where it says God is light and in him is no darkness at all and we should love one another. That love is difficult. Love's easy when you're just greeting somebody for the first time or when you've not seen them for a little while. It's okay to say, it's good to see you, I've missed you. But once you spend time together and you work through the hard times and the stressful times, the, the, the frustrations and the disagreements and, and the situations that can destroy you, and you continue to love through that, that's when the world sees something that's different. That's the importance of what we do in Christ. Exactly what is John talking about when he says to love one another? Well, he's, he's talking about something that's very, very powerful in our world. The problem is we forget that love is much deeper than what we imagine. You know, in, in the Greek, there were five different words that were used for love, and we confuse two of those words quite a bit. Phileo is the word that we use for, for just loving somebody that we have an affection for a friend, somebody that we just care about a lot, we enjoy. But that's not the love we're to use when we love those around about us, our brothers and sisters in Christ and those who are lost. We're to go to the word agape, Agape means an unconditional love no matter what. It means when they're at their worst, we're at our best. When they're the most unlovable, we're supposed to love them the most. Our love is not supposed to look at the individual and, and estimate their condition. We're actually supposed to look at them and see nothing but our concern for them. I've heard it said before that agape love is having that person's greatest need is your highest concern. That kind of love makes a difference. That's a love that reaches out to someone when they're hurting and they're lonely and they're frustrated. And it opens their eyes and their heart. It's not just being a friend and waving at someone that you wave at every day. It's being more than that. Some years back, I had a neighbor and a good friend, Park Keith, who... I got to talk to five days a week because I would walk in the morning with several friends and I would usually be at the corner of, of Keithway and Chambliss and, and, and Park would come out of his driveway, pick up his pay, paper at the end of his long driveway, take it back to his wife Brenda, drop it off at the door for her and then come out the driveway and usually he would pull up and talk to me for a few minutes. And I enjoyed those, those times. I got to know him that way. I ended up eating lunch with him a number of times in the downtowner. But the greatest act of friendship I got to show to him was when he was very ill and dying at Baptist South Hospital. He was so sick that no one could go in the room. You could hear him down the hall. The pain that he was in was beyond understanding. And I knelt out in the hallway with a nurse and two other men that were there, and we prayed together for him. That God would be merciful to him and would get him through that storm. God got him safely home through that. That's what love does sometimes. It was uncomfortable for me to do that because as a pastor, my job was to go and 
smile and shake someone's hand, talk with them, find out how they're doing, and then pray with them and leave. But love is described in different ways at different times. Love puts aside our comfort and what we're used to doing. It puts aside our convenience at the moment. Sometimes it moves outside our schedule and demands that we do something that's, that's, that's really alien for us. But you know what? That's exactly what God did for us. There's perfect love in heaven forever. It had always been that way between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But before the foundations of the world, God the Father, in His love for the Son, said, we're making a creation. And that creation is going to have a choice. They can choose to, to love us and trust us, or they can choose to go their own way. And they're going to choose to go their own way. They're going to fall. They're going to go into sin. And you're going to die to redeem them. That's the greatest act of love ever given. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, meaning go to utter destruction, but have eternal life. That's what happened. That, that's love. And, and that's why we can do no less than that in our lives. Some of us function like color commentators in a booth in a stadium watching a game. That's not the way it works. We are on the field, each Christian that's here. We are active, not passive. And people are watching us. They're observing what we're doing. And they're changed by that. Either they're brought to Christ or they're pushed away from Him. They're, even, they're either given a joyous experience or they're given a reason to walk away from God. That's why it's important that we do what we do. John points out in a realistic way here when he comments on Cain. And, and I think this is so sad when it says that. It says, we must not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. I want to remind you that Cain and Abel were in a worship experience when this battle happened. They were worshiping God. They came to bring their offerings to the altar to God. Cain had a problem. His problem was, one of them was jealousy. He was just, he had an envious spirit within him because God told him, you know, when you bring your offering, examine your heart. It wasn't, you know, we get confused. We say, oh, well, he brought the wrong offering. It had nothing to do with what he brought to offer. It had to be, had to deal with the hands and the heart that brought the offering. There was sin at the door in his heart already, and that sin was, was within his heart and it would reveal itself in a physical way. Sin always does. When you have sin in your heart, when you have drifted away from God, when you become more self-focused than God-focused, that's when sin creeps in. Jesus was sacrificial. He gave everything that he had for us. And we're to do no less. But in this passage, speaking of Cain, John points out that Cain got his inspiration from the devil himself. When you get to a situation in life where you feel like, well, I'm just being used by this person, or I'm being taken advantage of, or, or I, I can't do any more than this, stop and ask yourself this question. Did Jesus ever stop as he was dying on the cross for you and say, I've done enough? 
No, he didn't. No, he didn't. When he got to the last drop of blood coursing from his veins, dropping onto the the soil below him as those around him jeered and mocked him, his only statement was this, it is finished. And what he meant by that was, I have completed the task of sacrifice for those that God loves. I've given it all. And it will change them if they accept it. John's point is the failure to love leads us down the path of sin. It always does. What John is trying to say here is that Cain killed him not because he was inherently wicked, but rather as a sinful person. Cain as a sinful person hated someone who was good. You would have thought he would have looked at Abel and thought, how can I be more like him? What is he doing that I'm not doing? No, he didn't do that. Envy caught his heart and drew him away. And somehow the familial relationship of a brother, the only two brothers at that time that we're aware of, and one kills the other. He saw that his brother's righteous acts gained God's favor. And that made him angry. Do you rejoice when a brother or sister in Christ has something to celebrate? Or do you look at the celebration or are you envious? Do you appreciate the gifts and the abilities that another has? Or or are you sorry that you're not in the limelight? You see, when we love in such a way that we celebrate someone else's success, we pass from death into life. In this verse, John makes what seemed like a parenthetical statement because he reminds his readers that they must show love despite the fact that the world hates them. You see, we're in a world that's broken and they do all these things. They, they are jealous and they're envious and, and they get angry and frustrated. Yet, in this world, even though they may treat us that way, we don't behave that way. We've got to love. John tells them not to be surprised that the world hates you. Don't be surprised by that. Because the reality is, as a family, and that's what we are, brothers and sisters in Christ, we know that we're going out into a world that's broken. And we know that the majority of people that we share our faith with are not going to really be changed. Remember Jesus' description of the many and the few? Most people are not going to go to heaven because they think that being around someone that's going to heaven is enough. Or being around people who are living that kind of life will, will, will make you look clean enough or righteous enough. And I always enjoyed the, the phrase that I heard many years ago that, that went something like this, God doesn't have any grandchildren, He only has children. Because it's not what your parents have done or your grandparents or great-grandparents. It's what you do for Christ. It's your relationship. It's how you develop a walk with Him. How you develop that sense of, of knowing and understanding. That you come to Him and realize you're a sinner. You realize without Him you're hopeless. And you ask Him to come into your heart and forgive you of your sins. And go with you day by day. Yet so many people want to bypass that. 
They don't want to walk down that road. There's a lot of discussion in our society, and, and especially in political arenas, about whether or not the, uh, uh, the whole document you get when you take your shots should be something that you use to move from country to country or state to state or job to job or whatever. And, of course, that's created another industry which is forging those documents. Now, that's been going on for thousands of years. But a forged document is meaningless. Not only will it get you in trouble with the law, it's a felony to do that, but it's meaningless because it does not prove anything true in the end. You've not gotten your shots. And the reality is hanging around Christians or joining a church when you're not saved or, or trying to behave like a Christian when you've not accepted Christ as your Savior is meaningless. Because ultimately, I mean, you'll live a good life and you'll, you'll live a better life. If you do that, the only problem is you'll die and go to hell because you've never asked Jesus into your heart. I've had people actually say to me, well, don't you think God will understand? Don't you think he'll appreciate? Don't you, you know, and you see, there's not a scale that they, they put you on and say, well, is this person Christian enough? We'll let them into heaven. It doesn't work that way. The standard is very plain. It's very simple. It's not a difficult one to meet. To become a Christian is one of the simplest things you'll ever do. It's just being aware of your own sin, acknowledging it, understanding Jesus is the only hope, confessing that He is, and repenting from your sins, and then beginning that walk. Now, that's the tough part. Once you begin the walk, it, that's really tough because you do something you've never done before. You examine your own life daily, moment by moment. But lastly, I want you to think about this. The remarkable example of love that we are given is beyond understanding. And... In verse 16, John says, we know that real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. That is so powerful. He said, I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for my sheep. That's exactly what he expects of us. Yet so often, not only will we not lay down our life for someone, we won't even give them the time of day. Learn to slow down and listen. Learn to spend time with those around about you. Understand that somebody's not going to be wearing a badge that says, I'm a sinner. They may be looking for something that gives them hope and help. And it is your responsibility, it's incumbent upon you that you identify their need and their situation. Love means saying no to yourself so that someone else might live. One of my favorite authors... Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran theologian that was in Germany during the occupation of, of Hitler's Third Reich, a man who vehemently fought against that, even attempted to, to kill, to blow up Hitler, and, and failed, ended up in prison, and was executed in a concentration camp just a few weeks before the end of World War II. He wrote a, a number of books that are hauntingly powerful, and one of them talks about grace and how it works and, and in, in there he makes this comment he says cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church he said we are fighting today for costly grace and he said this he said cheap grace 
is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without discipline, communion without confession. He said cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, without the living and incarnate Christ within you. Cheap grace. And that's exactly what we are without the love of Christ. The world's looking for something better. They've tried everything out. They've tried everything in the way of technology, entertainment. They've done everything. And everything's left them empty. Here's what's amazing. Amazon.com doesn't have the answer to that. Neither does eBay. Certainly the shopping centers don't here in Selma. They're, most of the shelves are empty. You have the answer. You have the answer. It's not in a bottle or a box. It's within your heart. And the only thing that prevents you from sharing it is the decisions you make. What are you deciding today? What are you planning on doing this week? What are you calculating for right now? In your mind, you've got a list of things you need to do this week. On that list, does it mention that friend, neighbor, family member, co-worker that's lost? Are you praying for them and preparing for a way to reach them? One day when you get to heaven, you're going to walk into heaven. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be beyond anything we could ever imagine here. But you're also, at some point, going to be judged for the deeds done in the body. I've often said that I hope that they don't have video in heaven. I don't want to see a picture of the faces of the people that I neglected to share Jesus with. Neither do you. But in just a moment, I'm going to have a closing prayer and we're going to have an invitation. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes when I pray. And I want you to think about as you pray. Don't think about lunch or what you're going to do this afternoon. Think about the faces of those people. The ones that you know are lost. The ones that you know are searching. And ask God to give you a desire in your heart, an opportunity in your week to reach them for Christ, to share with them. You're not going to do the work. All you're going to do is just open up and tell them what you've seen, heard, and felt of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will do the rest. But ask Him for an opportunity to do that. And you know what you'll be doing? You will be, in this week, demonstrating the greatest act of love that you've shown in a long, long time. And I pray that you'll do that. Let us pray. Precious Savior, I thank you so much that you give to us a desire to serve you, to be obedient. And you've told us that as we come closer to you, we also become like you. And one of the ways we become like you is when we begin to love what you love. And God, I know that you love what is broken and battered and sinful because you loved each and every one of us. And I ask right now that you would speak to our hearts in a way that only your Holy Spirit can and convict and convince us of our need to change. Lord, we need to come closer to you, but we also need to have a burden for the lost, for those who are hurting, who need help. And I pray that you speak to someone this morning that in their heart of hearts, they need to come closer to you, to come closer to someone seeking hope. For love is something that everyone talks about and we all sing about, yet it's so rare in this world. This world does not even understand what true love really is about but we can demonstrate that to someone. Father, speak to someone this morning.
who needs to set their heart and their life in a focused effort to go toward that. And Father, may we be faithful to your call even now. For it's in your holy name we do pray.